In my ideal world, you know, if I were sitting in front of a policymaker, what I would say is, imagine that we were designing the labor market from scratch. What would that look like? And I think everybody can agree what it wouldn't look like is a system where employees only get access to all these benefits, rights, and protections, and everybody else who works but chooses to work differently, they choose to work part-time or on a contract basis or remotely, is somehow penalized. I don't think we would want that system. I think what we want is a labor market that supports people who work, everybody who works. Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Haq, Vice President of Talent Marketing at MBO Partners. Today, I will speak with Diane Mulcahy, independent consultant and advisor to Fortune 500 and startup company clients on the future of work, and author of The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work taking more time off, and financing the life you want. I will speak with Diane about the benefits of a strong, independent work economy and the need for improved labor policy for the future of work. Diane, it's a pleasure to welcome you to MBO's State of Independence podcast. You are a leading thinker and influencer in the future of work space and someone that is also an author that speaks directly to Uh, those that are thinking about a future career that involves gig or independent work, we're incredibly pleased to welcome you to our podcast. One of the things that we do with our guests is, given that we are at the 10th year of the State of Independence in America as a research report, we always love to start by asking where you were 10 years ago in your career and how that's brought you to where you are today. So 10 years ago, I was really just starting to work independently. I was at a stage in my career where I could exercise some control over how I structured my professional life and had made the decision to work independently and build a portfolio of work rather than having a full-time job. So really was in the very early stages of that. I was also just starting to um, teach in the MBA program at Babson, and that's where I created uh, the first class in the country on the gig economy. And you know, the book that I wrote on the gig economy really grew out of that class. Um, so it was all just beginning 10 years ago. Well, that is actually such a wonderful milestone, and I've admired what I've learned about your career path. I definitely see you as somebody who, for others, is an example of a successful and influential independent consultant. And I want to tease out a little further that personal history that you had shared a little bit with me about that has brought you this unique perspective. You know, you've spent time outside of the U.S., you have a global perspective, you've um, also been, as you mentioned, an educator and an author, and you have played a very interesting role more broadly in the entrepreneurship space with your role at the Kauffman Foundation. Talk to our audience a little bit about that background and that personal story, because I think it will really inform the discussion we have. 
Yeah, I mean, my my career is really grounded in the investment world. So I've been a private equity and venture capital investor for most of my career and really grew up in that space. So was always in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, always on the cutting edge of what the latest ideas were and really feel comfortable and at home in that space. So, you know, spent many years as a venture capital investor. And then as, as you alluded to, I moved overseas and spent some time writing about the venture capital industry. I had, you know, worked in it for a number of years. We had been through the dot-com crash and really wanted to reflect on some of the changes that had taken place around entrepreneurship, startup companies, and how the environment was changing. So did that. And when I came back was really when I decided to start building, you know, more of a portfolio career and working independently. So continue as a professional investor and then started to do more writing, um, took up teaching and started uh, working as an advisor to both startup companies and larger companies on issues around innovation, investing and the gig economy. So one of the things that you hit on in your book, The Gig Economy, which is really, I would think of it as a primer for how to live your life on your own career terms, you talk about 10 laws, and I'd love to hit on them. So one of them that I found really interesting was a concept that probably would make companies or even MBA students that you might be teaching a little uncomfortable. You talk about this idea of you know, home ownership is so boomer, you know, we, we want to access things in a different way. You also have nine other very intriguing laws. And as somebody who lives the life that you preach, talk about what that means for our audience and what it means for really both sides of the equation, the enterprise that's hiring and the professional that's considering this way of work. So in terms of independent work, um, you know, for individuals, I think having an alternative to working full time in a full time job is really empowering. Just like any form of work, you know, working full time as an employee in a job doesn't work for everybody. People have different goals that they're trying to accomplish. They have, you know, a variety of priorities and preferences that make the gig economy and independent work really attractive, as we've seen. I mean, the gig economy has grown tremendously over even just the past five years. And I think that's a testament to how many people are attracted to a different way of working and are interested in structuring a different professional life. For enterprises, I would say many enterprises have been slower to adapt than individuals and slower to adapt to the idea that independent workers can be a very successful uh, and valuable part of their workforce and slower to adapt to the idea of structuring work in a way that doesn't look like a full-time job, that includes projects and uh, assignments in addition to full-time jobs. The pandemic has really gone a long way in changing that on the enterprise side, because enterprises have already had to massively and abruptly adapt to a whole new way of working. And I think that has created a, sort of a wonderful momentum around change at the enterprise. So I think that companies now have adapted to this idea of remote work. They're more open to a broader geographic talent pool, more open to working with individuals that might not be present in the office every day, so therefore can be remote, can be independent. 
And I think the workforce going forward is going to look very different on the enterprise side as a result of that. So I think it's all exciting and good news for independent workers. I'm so glad you bring up this point, because one of the things I've been thinking about as I was preparing and getting ready for this podcast, that in addition to being a successful independent business owner yourself, an author and an influencer, you are somebody who's known as a key connector for CHROs that are looking for insights into the future of work. You've mentioned appreciating MBO's own work on the client of choice concept before, which is a subset of our state of independence research. Help our audience understand the depth of conversation you engage in with CHROs and why being, quote unquote, a client of choice could be an important differentiator for companies that are seeking to improve their workforce equation. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's a huge differentiator. What I've definitely seen is, you know, the people who choose to become independent contractors who go out and work on their own tend to be people who do so because they believe they can make a great living doing that, which means that they have skills that are in demand, they have experience that brings a lot of value to organizations. So if organizations want to be able to access this really important piece of the talent pool, I do think it's an important mindset shift to start thinking about you know, how can we become a client of choice? How can we be sure that we're a company that attracts the best independent workers, the best remote workers to our organization? So I love the work that MBO does in that space because it really articulates and brings out and emphasizes the key factors that independent workers look for and care about and find really valuable in their working relationships with organizations. So organizations that care about building out their independent workforce can look at those very tactical recommendations and take them on board. So to me, it's it's a really important shift in mindset. And I think the work that MBO does really contributes to the ability of organizations to take like tactical, concrete steps to be better clients for independent workers. You talk about a shift in mindset, and I want to tease out another concept that's in your book that is about a mindset shift. But in this case, it's about the independent or the the professional more broadly. You talk about this big, big concept of the social definition of success, and it's how it's not always the same as a personal definition of success. I'll tell you that I've struggled with this, even in my own career, shifting between a full-time role and an independent role. And usually I've chosen the path that will improve my independent career. I've not had regrets. But this mind shift is hard for people to make. So how do you counsel your students, those within your networks to approach this, and what can we learn from your wisdom here? You know, it is, a, it is a challenging mindset shift. And this idea of creating your own personal definition of success is really fundamental, in my view, to being a successful independent worker. And it's the reason that it's the first chapter in the book, because it's the foundation for establishing a successful and satisfying professional life, in my view. And the the basic idea behind it is that it's very easy to pursue the standard default vision of success that society, our parents, our teachers, and our bosses have for us. It's easy to click through the milestones of graduating, accumulating degrees, you know, getting sequential 
and increasing responsibility, jobs, you know, promotions, increases in salary, better titles, you know, buying a house, like putting together the traditional American dream. And that is well and good. And if that's what you are interested in, and that's what you feel makes you successful, then have at it. But I think for a lot of people, and I know this from working with MBA students and with individuals, uh, individual clients, for many people, you know, it's quite common to start executing on those milestones and then suddenly realize, wait a second, I don't really feel like I thought I was going to. This isn't really getting me where I wanted to be. I don't feel happy. I don't feel fulfilled. I don't feel challenged. Uh, I don't feel successful. And, you know, what I recommend is, and I have a series of exercises in my book that really take you through a process to discover what really is important to you. What are the values and priorities that are meaningful to you and that matter and are worth building a professional and personal life on top of. And when I do this exercise in the MBA class that I teach, the results are honestly profound and inspiring because you know I've had students who are very well on the way to traditional lives. They have full-time jobs, they have houses, they have families, they're in marriages, they've picked cities to live in. And I have seen them dismantle that life and create an entirely new one from scratch that brings them much more joy, much more happiness, much more meaning. And it it really is reinforcing to me about the importance of this work. And it sounds really easy to say, you know, take some time and think about what really matters to you and create your own personal definition of success. But I can assure you that the actual work that goes into that, the reflective work, the contemplating what really matters, the thinking through that is really much harder than it seems at the front end. But, you know, the results are well worth it. To me, that's really inspiring. And and it kind of leads me to another concept that I really enjoyed in your book, which is this idea. And I think I'm quoting a concept that's sort of a header of a chapter around the concept of diversify. So diversification is the new climb up the corporate ladder. I think that is a very, very compelling bridge for those who seek success, but need a pathway. You know, And I think what you're providing these young and, and smart contributors at Babson and beyond is an understanding that that could be a really successful path more broadly. So talk about career diversification portfolio careers and how that links to building expertise. Yeah. And I, I, I do think diversification is slowly becoming a concept that's much more accepted. And the pandemic has played a role in bringing that into the mainstream. We've all witnessed in the past year how professionals and, and employees across the spectrum, across industries, across sectors, across you know levels of experience have understood and experienced what happens when you concentrate your professional life and your income in a single employer and a single full-time job. We saw when the pandemic started that there were companies that did layoffs, that did downsizings, that furloughed workers. And for employees in those positions, they saw their income in many cases go from you know 100% to zero. What diversification does is it eliminates that risk, that risk of being, of having all your eggs in one basket, of being completely 
all in and concentrated in one employer with one full-time job. And in practice, what that looks like is think about the corollary in the investment world. You would never take all of your retirement savings and invest it in a single stock. Similarly, in when you're thinking about constructing a work life, you would never take all of your labor, your energy, your focus, your attention, and invest it into one single company and one job with one employer. Instead, this new idea of diversification looks like even if you have a full-time job, making sure that at the same time you have side gigs that are contributing to developing new skills, expanding your network, and opening up opportunities and other income streams for the future. And those can be active side gigs like serving on boards, um, volunteering with nonprofits, building a business you know, out of your own talents and passions, or it could be passive, right? creating a stock portfolio or a portfolio of rental properties. So there are different ways to think about diversifying, but this notion is increasingly important when it comes to de-risking your career and making sure that your professional development and your financial security and stability isn't entirely in the hands of one single company. That's really the basic premise. The concept of de-risking has actually come up again and again in different conversations we've had on state of independence, and it's come up on both sides of the equation. If you think about uh, COVID-19 and how dramatically it's it's helped to kind of increase interest and, and acceptability of independent work, part of that is the de-risking component, taking away some of what makes it hard for both sides, independents and companies, to engage in this new way. What do you see as, from a corporate perspective, something that would help to de-risk it for the buyer, right? So we've been talking about the talent or the provider. Do you see any insights that, that help us to look at the buyer in a new way from a de-risking perspective? I think in terms of de-risking from the company side, being open to hiring and working with independent workers eliminates your risk on full-time employees, right? On making on on your ability to access the talent that you need exactly when and where you need it, which is hard to do when you're talking about a full-time employee, but easier to do if you're thinking about an independent worker. You can access a much broader range of talent, both in terms of the number of people and the geographic reach, if you're willing to work with people independently and also remotely. So I think for companies, making sure that you are accessing, identifying, recruiting, curating the best group of employees is something that companies have always focused on and done. But taking those same skills and making sure that you're applying them to the independent workforce also can really de-risk operations. I mean, if you're in the middle of a product launch or if you're in the middle of a new initiative, and you need to access specific talent or in a specific location, having access and experience with the independent workforce can really make that much easier for you to identify, curate, and bring on board that talent. Right. And, and the term that has become, I think, important in this conversation is the idea of workforce optimization. And you you kind of speak to it in that practical way when you think about a business unit head launching a new product. 
that they're now constructing a new way to get work done. We see this trend at MBO happening in a very broad way across some of the leading enterprises that are our clients that are looking at their overall workforce makeup and saying, is the way that this workforce is distributed between full-time, onshore and even offshore work structured the right way? And how do we optimize this to achieve the outcomes that we want? So I very much see echoes of what you're describing as a pain point for an individual manager as being the, the actually the pain point for the board, right? Or for the strategic future of the company that the CEO is thinking about as we have um, so much business disruption occurring around us. The more that we are variable as a cost model, and the less that we are fixed, the more likely we are to survive as a corporate entity when you think about the disruption, even just in the last 12 months. That's entirely true. And I think too, when you have, you know, the more diversity that you bring into your workforce, which includes office-based and remote, full-time and independent contractor, the more resilient you are as a workforce, you know, the more flexible, the more efficient, the more able to adapt to change and disruption. So I think there are many benefits that go along with it. And, you know, I think for corporations, the mindset is really, you know, at the extreme end is really thinking about labor as a service. And how do you kind of create this cloud of a labor force that you can tap into and access exactly when and where you need in order to get the skills, the expertise, the experience, the geographic location, whatever it is, when you need it. I mean, that's kind of the ideal from the employer perspective? You know, we have been um, actively seeing this need grow within our client base. And one of the things that's been happening that's been very interesting inside our organization is the rise of benches of talent that we help our clients to curate to help them sort of solve for these hot skills and hot needs that they have that really require more of a cloud or a bench you know, than a full-time employee because of the way that skills need to be assembled to get work done. So very much see validation of your labor as a service model within some of what we're seeing inside our enterprise. I want to um, talk about a concept from the State of Independence Survey, which sort of bubbled up as a really interesting sub-thread and, and COVID really had a big part to play in this. So we learned that for some subset of the U.S. workforce, it's the new American dream to be a digital nomad, to live what we think of as hashtag fan life. And um, this has been a trend that's been written up in really many of America's leading news publications. From our data, we know that 10.9 million people see themselves as digital nomads, and that's actually a 50% increase just over a year ago. Before the pandemic, only 7% of U.S. workers worked full-time at home. But now, according to a Stanford University study that was conducted in the summer of 2019, that's numbers approaching almost half of all of U.S. workers that are working reporting full-time from home. So we have digital nomadism and we have full-time remote work. What do you see as the future for these two trends? It's only growing for both of those trends. You know, I think everybody agrees that we are not going back to full time, every day, all day in the office kind of work model. I think that model is dead. Maybe some people there, you know, when you do surveys of employees, there's some small percent of the workforce that appreciates going to an office all the time. 
And, you know, for those people have at it, but for the majority of the workforce, they want to continue to work remotely uh, full time or most of the time, some kind of hybrid model where they go into the office for collaboration, for meetings, for touching base with their team, having that in-person social contact, but they're happy and productive to work remotely. So I think that trend is entrenched, established, and the future. We're not going back from that. On the digital nomad side, you know, I think there is this kind of extreme model on the one hand of, you know, I'm on a beach in Thailand or I, I live in a van. And those are inspiring and interesting ways of working. But I think you can also dial that back to, you know, I'm in my beach house for the summer and I'm a digital nomad. So I think what we're going to see is this idea of digital nomadism taking root and becoming much more mainstream and incorporating many more models that look like normal everyday life for us. And, you know, looks like a seasonal work model where, hey, I love skiing. I'm going to, you know, work out of Colorado in the winters and Cape Cod in the summers and, you know, the city the rest of the time. We are going to see much more flexibility around geographic location, whether it's exotic or it just caters to people's individual preferences. So I think this idea of digital nomad will become less exotic, more common, and a much larger part of the workforce. I really do agree with this. And, you know, I've personally contemplated, you know, where is that second place that I would love to be based and work? And I know many of us have had, you know, or may have second spaces where we're comfortable spending time like a beach house in the summer or at a, you know, a family member's home. And, and suddenly that is not a conflict with work. It is more of an enhancement of work. I think a very apt and very accurate way of describing what um, nomadism will become in the future. And I think it'll, to your point, as it becomes more acceptable and more mainstream, it may rapidly grow to be more of what everybody wants to do all of the time. One of the things that I do at MVO, and it, and it struck me, it was not formally a question I was going to ask, but this thread of conversation brought it up is, I work around our concept of the diversity and inclusion within the independent workforce and how, you know, we as a company seek to, to have that grow, you know, to include 10,000 more within the independent workforce to create broader opportunity. And I think actually that conversation is linked to what we just talked about, which is the idea that work can now be performed from anywhere and with the duality of the acceptance of your home space and your workspace being the same thing. So talk about what you see from your students about how independent work or gig work could be more inclusive of people that might not have had the best right to succeed in the traditional work equation of big city, big name brand degree, you know, certain kind of affluence to be able to be in the right place at the right time. Do you see that changing and in which direction? I do see it changing, particularly now. I I think I always saw it changing in theory. Mm-hmm. You could always make the argument that as the workforce became more independent, more remote, that people could live everywhere, that people who lived in areas that weren't close to uh, big cities with big companies you know, could find more meaningful work, better opportunities right where they were. And in theory, I think that's always been true. We're only just starting to see it come true in practice to be honest. 
And I think it's a really exciting time for people who do want to live in alternative locations that don't look like major metropolitan areas. You know, I was talking to a colleague last week and he had decamped to Montana for two months. He had a a family place there and didn't need to be in the city. And I think that the potential for second tier, third tier cities, for being out in more rural environments and being able to offer people better opportunities will help those places grow, thrive, maintain their population. So I I think it's all positive from a geographic point of view. I think in terms of diversity, independent work really also opens up opportunities for people who have traditionally been on the margins of the labor force. And by the way, that includes students, stay-at-home parents, the disabled, people who are older and maybe have retired from their full-time career, but still want to stay active and earn income. Being able to work independently and remotely really opens up opportunities for all of those people who were never good candidates for taking on a full-time job uh, with a commute into an urban area. And I've seen this evolve in my MBA class where uh, you know students are doing all kinds of things on the side so that they can minimize how much student loans they have to take. I've seen it in, you know, I've done some webinars for AARP where you have an elderly population that is snowboarding. They move from location to location. And now they're able to continue working regardless of where they are and on a part-time schedule because many of them have retired from full-time work. They want to keep working but not full-time. So I think it's really exciting for those populations to have many more opportunities available to them now than they really ever have. So my very first startup, uh, which I launched right after leaving a traditional corporate career, was around this very idea of how to include retirees, um, those that had uh, chosen to stay at home for dependent care of children or aging parents, to be included. And we had a lot of barriers. You know, this was a long time ago that I launched this business. There was conceptual interest, but to your point, there was not actual structural acceptance. And I agree with you that that it's completely changed in the last 12 months. And what I keep thinking about is something I'd read about with whether it's running a marathon or trying to lose weight, it takes a long time to achieve consistent behavior. And I think what the pandemic has forced is the behavior of doing it differently has been enforced for so long that it has now become a habit. And in fact, has almost moved from a habit to being a competency for organizations. And I I agree with you that I think that is what's going to open up opportunity for these groups to be structurally able to be contributors in a more accepted way and actually appreciated rather than seen as sort of second class citizens, which I think was maybe the model 10 or 15 years ago. Absolutely. I I completely agree with that. And I agree that, you know, they say it takes three months to form a habit. We're well beyond that now. And all of the inertia is around the status quo. So I'm so curious, you know, to see what it will be like to try to get people to come back to the office, because that's going to be the challenge is how do you, you know, what's interesting is during the pandemic, the burden of proof has really shifted. Before, 
employees and independent workers really needed to make the case about how they could be productive and trusted and deliver value wherever they worked. And now I think the burden of proof is really on the companies to say, despite the fact that we've all been working remotely for the past 18 months or two years or whatever it ends up being, here's why we need you to come back to the office. And I honestly think it's a very hard case to make. I'm with you there. So something I know about you and our audience may or may not be aware is that you're very much a sort of a policy level strategic thinker as well. You know, in your book, you allude to and talk very openly about some of that dissonance between what individuals want themselves and what companies want versus what the government wants, like the Department of Labor, in terms of structurally making a case for full-time employment, or at least trying to. How, as we start to start to wrap up, I wanted to kind of take it up a level. How do you talk to a policymaker about the way things should be structured in the future? And are you concerned about the way that the labor conversation is going today? I'm concerned about the lack of a, of a labor conversation in any meaningful way about how the labor market needs to change in order to support the growth of the gig economy and people's ability to choose how they want to structure their professional lives. To me, what's amazing about the gig economy is how quickly and how much it has grown despite the labor market structure that we have in place. In the US, our labor market supports and rewards full-time employees and full-time jobs. That's it. If you leave full-time employment, you are penalized. You start losing access to benefits. You start losing rights and protections, which are only given to employees. You are also taxed additionally for working uh, as a self-employed individual. So it's in no way easy to make that choice uh, from a policy perspective. In my ideal world, what I, you know, if I were sitting in front of a policymaker, what I would say is, imagine that we were designing the labor market from scratch. What would that look like? And I think everybody can agree what it wouldn't look like is a system where employees only get access to all these benefits, rights, and protections, and everybody else who works but chooses to work differently, they choose to work part-time or on a contract basis or remotely, is somehow penalized. I don't think we would want that system. I think what we want is a labor market that supports people who work, everybody who works. And so you know, what I advocate is a system where we take the benefits, rights, and protections that we give to employees and we extend them to all workers. And we, there was such a great example of that during the pandemic where very quickly we created and implemented a system that gave, you know, quote unquote, unemployment insurance. It's really income protection to independent workers who had never had that before. And I think that example is so powerful because it shows what we can do if we have the will to do that. I think this is a, a, a political will issue. We were able to very quickly give that protection to those workers. And I think it'll be very difficult to walk that back now that we know that we can do it, now that we've seen the benefits of it, now that independent workers have felt the comfort of that safety net and having access to it. Hopefully that will inform the conversation going forward and our focus can really be on how do we extend 
the rest of the benefits and protections to all workers. Well, that is, I think, a a pure recipe for success. I mean, I would say that there's many inside MBO's own organization that have been advocating in this way. Our founder, Jean Zeno, has been a longtime advocate for looking at the independent workforce more strategically and more inclusively. We too really celebrated the extension of the CARES Act to include um, self-employed workers. And self-employment, there's no real way to get around it, is the future, right? So whether or not we recognize it, it sort of depends on where we sit and what information we're provided. I think we can see the writing on the wall in your book for those that will have the luck to pick it up and read it. I think that there's sort of messages in there, not just for the individual seeking to live that dream, but also for the policymaker understanding what workers really want from work. So I thank you for taking the time to talk with us, to share your wisdom, and to break down some of the concepts in your book. Um, I'm sure everyone is really going to enjoy this episode. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate all your thoughtful questions. That was Diane Mulcahy, author of The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life You Want. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.